Welcome to A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World with your host, Anya Cates. This podcast has one mission, to rally a generation that's been labeled and groomed as lazy, triggered, and entitled, and invite us all to write a new story. One of a generation that's willing to challenge the status quo, reject black and white thinking, and opt out of each and every repressive system and box that we've been placed in. Above all else, I want to invite millennials to step up to the plate, to be vulnerable in owning our responsibility to ourselves and for walking this planet through the darkest of days. It's time to dream new dreams, write new stories, and create new futures. The great work begins. episode of A Millennial's Guide to Saving the World. That little tune you just heard after the intro was called Patience by the Lumineers. I have to say I'm not a huge fan of that band, but their instrumental stuff I'm pretty into. And I picked that tune in particular because I spend a lot of time trying to figure out what uh, music to play with all of these episodes. And um, Uh, Normally, the situation occurs where I can't find what I want to play, but sometimes I want to play too many things, and do I play a song that just uh, really means something to me right now, but may not apply to the episode, or do I try to find something that's applicable to the episode? Normally, I settle on the latter, um, which is the case this time. And the reason I wanted to play uh, Patience at the beginning is because uh, Joe and I talk a bit about patience in our episode, and it's definitely been a theme that I've been mulling around with for a while, Uh, and for a while, I guess I mean forever, but really focusing on it recently, Um, and talking to friends with it and about it in the sense of, you know, I wonder how many of our issues, for some of us, not all of us, but how many of our issues are not so much that there's a, a problem even, but are 
the degree to which we become unsettled when things are just okay, like the degree of our discomfort with just the present moment and stillness and being and like, I definitely the past few months, I was going through something, I was trying to figure something out, it was bothering me immensely. And I was trying to figure out what the solution is, like, why can't I get this? Why can't I get this? Why can't I understand it? Or I understand this conceptually, but I can't experience it as such, like, I'm reacting emotionally to something that I know, intellectually doesn't make any sense, and logically doesn't make any sense. And I guess I hadn't been in that place for a while. I've certainly used to be in that place much more often, but I hadn't been there in a while, but I caught myself in the same situation. Like, okay, I know this is a problem. I understand what kind of problem it is. I understand what the thoughts are that are creating the problem, but I can't get out of the thoughts. And now I feel like there's been a bit of a transition and I described it in the way of like a seesaw that let's say on one end of the seesaw was trust and on the other side was fear. And up until now, at least this problem or issue that I was dealing with for the past few months, the fear side overpowered the trust side. So the fear side of the seesaw was higher. And what happened a week or so ago, a week and a half ago, is that they finally leveled out. So the fear and trust were on the same playing field. And then suddenly what happened was that the trust side started to be higher than the fear side. It didn't mean that the fear was gone. You know, I'm very careful not to say like, okay, I'm done with that now because that's not how things work ever. Um, But certainly I felt a very tangible shift. I felt it everywhere in my body and my mind. And once I sort of got out of that, once I was sort of to able to gain perspective on it so the trust side was slightly higher than the fear side so I could breathe a little bit and relax and just gain some insight on what had happened over the past few months I recognized that there was no way I could have sped up that process that parted part of what I needed to do was to sort of gather information and ask difficult questions and put myself in situ put myself in different situations where I could sort of test out this question that I kept asking myself to sort of play with this fear that I had. Where was it coming from? Was it realistic? Was it me? Was it someone else? Was it constructed externally? Um, And now that I look at it, it's like, why did I spend so much time? I mean, certainly it was painful and uncomfortable, but why did I spend so much time being so frustrated and impatient with not being able to figure it out? I don't know how many times I have to learn that lesson. I mean, I, I, after gaining the perspective on this situation, I was talking to a friend, like, I remember this exact thing happening before. I remember I would get involved romantically with a certain type of person who would do certain types of things. And I remember asking my therapist, like, it felt like I didn't have control over the situation, or it felt like these people, like, were, I was just attracting this kind of person and I remember and then not only would I attract them but I would engage in this kind of dance and this dynamic with them that was fucking ridiculous and hurtful and not super evolved but it kept happening even once I had again understood it logically and conceptually so like I knew what was going on but it still happened and I still found myself stuck it was like I know I'm an alcoholic, but for some reason I keep finding myself at a bar and then, like, having a drink. 
Um, and I remember asking her, and I can't exactly remember how she worded it. I wish I could because it was much more eloquent than in the way I'm probably going to describe it. But I remember asking her, like, when is this going to stop? Like, when am I, when is this going to stop happening? When am I going to stop doing this? And she just said very simply and calmly, when you're ready to stop doing it. But it's not going to be something you're fighting to stop. When it stops, it's going to kind of surprise you. It's going to happen naturally. It's not going to be something you're going to be forcing or pushing against. I feel like the word I keep thinking of is grading, which isn't at all the word she used or the right word, but that was sort of the sentiment of like, it's not going to feel tough. You're not going to be scraping at something. You're not going to be like scraping the walls in order to escape. You're just going to be able to walk through a door and be like, oh, I guess that door is open now. But to keep pushing at it or on it to try to get through it is not going to work. And I feel like that's where I was the past few months of being so fucking frustrated that I couldn't find the way through the door when what I really needed to do was just like sit by the door and wait. And I think that applies to situations that we're frustrated with in life, but I think just with all sort of journeys and goals and desires, um, this episode with Joe today is about uh, community and leadership, and um, we both, I think, share a lot of very similar qualities. Um, and one of those things is patience. Like, we both seem to be the type of person where when we decide uh, what it is that we want or we, we figure out where it is that we're going, we want to be there right now. You know, and, and obviously we need to take our time, we need to assess the situation, we need to learn more. Like, that's a beautiful thing to be able to define and see a goal. I remember what that felt like when it was extremely vague and um, existed more energetically in my body than it did a series of plans. But if we can just sort of sit in that place and let things come to us instead of trying to go find them. I think I probably use some sort of metaphor in here at some point where, you know, I think the best place to be when I feel the best is it really actually feels like life is happening three or four steps ahead of me, um, which at first, uh, having lived a life of like intense control and neurosis and overperformance and perfection. I was constantly trying to get ahead of everything. Like if I can control this, if I can, uh, see what's going to come next, I can sort of like see what all the moves are before they happen. Um, which is not a relaxing or fun or exciting place to be at all. And at a certain point a year, a little over a year ago, I remember, that I didn't really feel like that anymore. Um, things had transpired in my life that were so unexpected that there was no way for me to sort of gain control over them. I didn't even have the desire to. It was just like, oh, fuck, like, this is so cool. And I have no idea what's coming next. I might as well just sit back and enjoy the ride. And the image that came to mind was that I was just sort of floating through space, like orbiting, and that there were different planets or comets or stars or whatever. There were things that were, you know, floating past me, flying by. And everything that I needed, I was confident would pass me at some point. 
and the only effort I needed to put in was to reach out and grab it. And I think it's an important distinction because when we talk about creating something, when we talk about uh, patience, or when we talk about like things are just going to come to us, like everything, it's nuanced, right? We can use that same line of reasoning to sit in our rooms and do nothing, to not take action. So it's important, I think, the, the reaching out and grabbing was the distinguishing quality of this metaphor, right? I'm not just lying in my orbit and not doing anything to grab what it is that I want. I'm definitely taking the action and grabbing it when I see it. I'm not afraid of it when I see it and I go get it. But I'm not stepping outside of my orbit. I'm not trying to jump from orbit to orbit. I'm not trying to imagine that something is coming up ahead of me and reaching out to grab it before I'm ready to grab it. Um, I think that's such an important place to be and the place that I know I feel the best being, but, but it takes effort and reminder, and I was certainly reminded of that the last few months and again when um, Joe and I recorded this podcast. So I don't know if me saying I'm going to try and do better about that is actually going to make a difference, but hopefully it will. It's kind of nice. It's nice when you kind of fuck up or you like have to learn the same lesson over again. I do think, you know, I've talked about this a lot about how so many things, life lessons, growth is cyclical. It's not just a straight shot. We have to like sort of keep coming back to the place, but hopefully every time we come back to that place, we come back in a slightly different position. So we sort of return to something familiar, but sort of see it in an entirely new way. So that's how I'm going to look at it. I'm going to kind of look at this experience I had in the past few months and be, be grateful for the reminder that nothing works when you try to push it to work. So that's all I have to say about that. Um, I have a lot to say. I know it's been a little slow getting these podcasts out. It hasn't been happening weekly. It's been more like bi-weekly, but just trying to figure my life out here and fucking internet's challenging and I've got so many projects. So hopefully you guys don't mind. Hopefully you have enough podcasts to catch up on, uh, either mine or someone else's. Um, speaking of podcasts, uh, my friend Aaron and I have a new podcast called Horrapport, uh, R-A-P-P-O-R-T. We just released episode five. It's about desire. Um, I'm, I'm really excited about this podcast I'm doing with her. It's all about sexuality and gender and power and intimacy and eroticism. And it's definitely different than a lot of I think the sex, quote unquote, sex podcasts that are out there now, we, we really were frustrated with what was being said in the public sphere around um, sexuality and wanted to uh, just provide a different viewpoint. So it's very um, shame free. We try not to pathologize anything. We try not to demonize masculinity. We don't victimize femininity. We sort of just look at things in the most nuanced and open and honest and vulnerable, vulnerable uh, way possible. That's definitely been um, a challenge. Something else I actually talked to Joe a lot about, uh, even offline, about vulnerability, um, talking about sex and sexuality in a way that both keeps our own privacy but is vulnerable which is what I think we need to do and breed vulnerability in other people to be open and honest it's an it's a never-ending uh I wouldn't say struggle but 
definitely like a, a never ending kind of maze to work through, which is honestly been kind of fun and interesting. Keeps things, uh, keeps us on our toes. So, um, if you want a podcast to keep up on while I'm a little slow in re- releasing mine, whole rapport, uh, is one that you can do that with or any other podcast. There are so many damn podcasts now. I love it. Um, what else? I guess in speaking, one other thing I wanted to mention before I start this episode, um, this isn't a thought that is extremely well organized. Uh, but in being in Thailand, I was asked the question, like, actually, we were in Myanmar for a while, which was really fucking cool. I really liked it there. It felt like I was sort of plopped into a place that I, that I, as in a Westerner, not didn't belong, but really hadn't touched that much yet. Um, it felt sort of like an honor to be placed within a culture that was sort of running on its own and semi-unbothered with my presence. Um, sort of feel like I was looking at something through a peephole almost. Uh, anyway, I was asked, like, is this the farthest you've been from home, at least culturally speaking? And the answer is absolutely yes. Um, and yet it didn't feel weird or off-putting at all. And I started to question why that was. I mean, I haven't traveled extensively in Asia before. Um, Mostly my traveling took place in Europe. But one thing that I do think was impressed on me at a young age, both in my own family life, but also when I went to college, was this sort of idea of social construction. Um, I lived in Paris when I was 12, and I remember my mother saying to me, quite often that one of the main reasons that she wanted us to live there was that she wanted my brother and I to recognize that there were many, many more realities than just our own, that there were many cultures and perspectives and ways of doing life and seeing life and understanding life that were not American and not, you know, specific to the town that we grew up in in New York. And although that was maybe not as extreme in Europe, as it is, let's say, in Asia, um, it, I point taken. It definitely made sense to me. Um, and I think I grappled with a lot of these ideas and finding out that my dad was gay and sort of experiencing him as a gay man with a partner before I had the word gay to understand him. And then I sort of learned that there was this word with all these negative connotations that applied to my dad, but my dad was good. So if gay is bad, but my dad's good, I'm pretty sure that word or and its meaning is uh, bullshit at worst and socially constructed at best. Um, and then when I went to college and I studied gender and sexuality, I remember one of the very first courses that I took was the invention of homosexuality. And we learned pretty much immediately about this idea of a social construction. And one of the first examples she gave was talking about Oscar Wilde, like, okay, if we look at Oscar Wilde, we might call him gay, but we technically can't call him gay because the term gay, meaning what we know it means today, didn't exist then. So that's just us applying a context and a word and an understanding of the future or the present into the past, which technically we can do, but is also technically inaccurate. Um, Just as it would be to apply the word gay to uh, ladyboys in Thailand. The way that they look at sexuality, even though some actions might look 
similar, even though on paper something might look similar, the meaning of it and the understanding of it is totally fucking different. So I actually feel like traveling this far away from home now is more comforting than anything because it reaffirms that idea and something that when I was younger living in America where the vast majority of the people around me didn't fucking understand that. And to me, it was something I sort of grew up with from when I was 10 years old. It was something that before I had words for it, I understood that to some extent we make things up. And, you know, it's it's hard to talk about these things because I've increasingly become frustrated by words. Um, so, like, for example the word woman. You know, I can say that for my whole life, I've, I've, I've not felt like a man, let's say I've, I've felt like a woman, but I definitely embodied many, many traits that I think we all would sort of understand as masculine. Uh, I, as a kid, especially I played with the boys, I dressed in baggy clothes. I, you know, was loud and I was always sort of assumed leadership roles. And so a lot of these traits were masculine in nature, let's say manly in nature, boyish, whatever that means. I'm like doing air quotes to myself over here. Um, And that never made me feel like I wasn't a woman. It just made me feel like I'm a certain type of a woman. And I recognize that, okay, I've got these body parts And maybe I embody femininity energetically more so than I do masculinity. But the word woman, it's just a fucking word made of letters. The meaning we have associated with woman is cultural and societal. You know, the meaning, what woman means is completely varied from culture to culture to culture. And so one thing I always sort of get in trouble with, which I'm going to talk about again, just because I like getting in trouble, um, is, is kind of the whole, like, the way we look at gendered words, um, and the whole gender non-binary thing, and I hope all my listeners recognize, like, how fucking liberal and not bigoted I am, um, but I can't help but think, like, would it not be more revolutionary to be like, okay, you want to have these two genders, you want to have man and woman, you want to have he and she, I'm going to completely fucking redefine what he means. I'm going to totally blow your head off when it comes to the meaning of she, you know? You think I'm a woman? Well, I think I'm a woman too, but guess what? That is a totally different type of woman than you think. Like, I'm going to make it up because why not? It's all made up. You know, I can, and and sure, you can be a woman with male body parts and vice versa. Like, I'm much more interested in evolving language in terms of its meaning and feeling than I am about rejecting it. I just think it's much more powerful to sort of uh, swim in the discomfort of like, 
the way that you see me doesn't feel right. It's honestly, it's why I called this fucking podcast a millennial's guide to saving the world. I can't tell you how many years I lived in shame about being a young person and specifically being a millennial. Like if that word was ever uttered, I would go, I would so quickly try and remove myself from that category. I'd be like, oh, well, I'm not like that. You know, I'm not like, you know, I'm this, I'm I'm older for my age or like, uh, that doesn't apply to me. I don't resonate with that. I mean, I would work so hard not even to let anyone know how old I was to begin with, but if they figured it out and they said the word millennial, like I would run for the fucking hills. And the reason I started this podcast with the word millennial in it is because I didn't want to run away from it anymore. I realized that was just creating more shame, uh, and was, I think, adding to the problem. So if this thing that applies to me culturally, I don't agree with, I don't want to run away from it. I'm going to challenge it. I'm going to, I'm going to go on a fucking soapbox and be like, yeah, I'm this thing, but guess what? This thing that you think I am looks different sometimes, maybe most of the time. And that, you know, can apply to millennial, it can apply to woman, it can apply to heterosexual, like, I'm gonna just totally disrupt this boxed definition or meaning or understanding that you have of a thing. If I opt out of it, I don't really have any opportunity to do that. I, it's definitely uncomfortable and scary, like, the first six months, even now, when people ask me what the name of the podcast is, I cringe a little bit. Because I know what they're thinking, like, oh, you're just gonna like talk about fucking PC woke culture bullshit, which is obviously the antithesis of what I try and do on this show. But that's what people think. But I don't freaking care. I'm gonna do it anyway because I think it's powerful. And I know from getting messages from people who sort of fit into that same boat, like, thank you. Like, let's just totally blow the lid off what people think about us. I don't even know how I got into that tangent. I think it was talking about uh, Aaron and my podcast. We did this episode about desire and we're going to be recording an episode soon about masculinity and femininity, which we actually recorded and then decided wasn't good enough and decided we needed to re-record it um, because it's really challenging to talk about. And because I, again, struggle and get frustrated with words and I know that people are so quick to me too like so quick to hear something and be like but that's not how I feel about it or you know but you said that about this person and so what does it mean for me and how is it different and sometimes sometimes words are just not enough and this is coming from someone who considers themselves a writer and who has a podcast. Like, words are a huge part of my life, but they're also extremely limiting sometimes. And so, yes, that applies to gender, let's say, um, and also maybe in regard to this show, this conversation that I promise you I will get to soon, that you're going to hear. I think it applies to all things. Like, we talk about leadership a lot, and there are so many negative connotations with all these different types of things. Like, oh, you're a leader, you're a guru, like, oh, you are, you know, let's say sexually submissive. Oh, you're a masochist. You don't have any power or self-worth. Um, I think, like, let's just move toward the discomfort. Let's stop pathologizing who we are and what we want. And let's just try and redefine it and work to figure out like 
who we are and what our authentic expression is and what our fucking intuition is telling us. And the farther we go away from that, um, I think the harder it's going to be to do any work on ourselves for the world and certainly inspire anyone to do the same. Um, so I think it's a question of like moving as far away from the label and the word as possible and then being like, okay, now I'm going to go back there, but it's going to look totally different. I certainly did that with myself. I think in regard to being a woman, it was like, you know what? Hold up. Like, I'm going to move as far away from like dressing in any sort of sexy, confident way. I'm going to grow my armpit hair. <laughs> like, I'm just going to stop shaving. I'm just going to reject all this stuff so that eventually I can find my way back. You know, I've talked about that a lot, that we do this 180 degree correction thing. But that's just like step one. Eventually, I think the most power and the most meaning and the most insight comes from figuring out how to go back around the cycle and get to the same place in a different way. So that's all my jibber-jabber thoughts for today. Hopefully some of it made sense as per usual. I always record these and have no idea. Um, so enjoy this episode, uh, with Joe, as I mentioned, when we first start recording, this is kind of the first time I've had someone on to really talk about community, which is obviously the major thing that I want to do in my life, um, both remotely through this podcast, uh, but really that was just a stepping stone in order to find a physical spot where I could bring people together and where we could all feel like we're not alone and, um, really work to just generate a really positive space where people feel comfortable being themselves outside of the context of um, limiting culture and society and belief systems. So enjoy the show and I will catch you on the other end. All right. Hi, Joe. Hi. <laughs> I'm glad we started recording because I feel like we were about to have the whole podcast episode like off yeah. line. <laughs> it's always hard when you make a connection with someone, you're like, okay, fuck, we got to turn the mics on because <laughs> yeah. I can't stop. Um, so I'm really excited about this. I talk quite a bit about community on my podcast. Mm -hmm. It's uh, <clears throat> something my listeners know I want more than anything. Mm -hmm. A big reason I started the podcast, actually, was to kind of, I guess, find out for myself like what my own values were. Mm -hmm. Um, and what kind of community I wanted to create, but then also sort of like use it as a bridge connecting with people in order to like take sort of community ideas mm. or concepts into practical uh, use. Yeah. Um, so anyway, all that to say, like I've talked about it so much, but I've not actually had anyone on the podcast mm. to talk about it specifically. Mm -hmm. It sort of is always a secondary theme. So yeah. uh, when I met you the other day, I was like, yes talk about community, community guy. <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs> um, and I think as I sort of mentioned especially a few years ago when I started thinking about all of this it sounds like a lot of the sort of places you went and ideas you had were very similar to the mm -hmm. ones that I had yeah. um, so I'd love to I guess back it up a bit and maybe ask you like when did you start thinking about these things yep. um, and we can kind of take off from yeah, there go from there um, I guess it goes back for me to really 
a feeling of alienation and isolation, just living in a Western context and having, on paper, just a really amazing life, like a loving, supportive family, great friends, had a good job, and I just didn't feel whole. I didn't feel like everything was fundamentally right, and that irked me. I'd been traveling a lot earlier in my 20s, and I'd experienced moments uh, at festivals, camping, during productions, but probably mainly in kind of uh, contemplative centers, kind of like mystery schools or meditation retreats where I got a lived sense of connecting with a group of people that showed me that, yeah, there's another way of living other than our kind of alienated Western modern context. And it um, nurtured me in a way that, yeah, made me feel really whole and full. So I started to think, I pointed myself in the direction of wanting to maybe open a meditation center and um, kind of have community around the edges. I didn't realize at that point that community was really what I was looking for. It's kind of this nebulous thing. And I found that with a lot of people that they don't quite know what they're missing. And even when they experience it and find it, they don't quite know that that is what's nurturing them until it's gone. I have people that have been in the communities I've been a part of, and then they'll leave, they'll go to another parts of the world, and it will take them a few months to be like, whoa, what we had was really magical. So it's this kind of nebulous uh, feeling, effect. It's quite hard to put your finger on. It's quite kind of strange to become you know, an expert in community because it means so many different things in many different ways, but it's definitely where my trajectory is headed, um, particularly after running a Whole Foods cafe that uh, we had events and, um, yeah, we were really about community rather than food, even though we didn't say that explicitly. And what built up in that context was just really beautiful. It was people from all walks of life, different demographics, um, really varied group of people and we all felt something was going on. We'd visit quite frequently. People would come in every day. And, yeah, there was just this this magic. We all started to sink into ourselves a little bit more and felt like, ah, oh, this is now the most important thing in our lives. This is what we want to prioritize. And that uh, I started to see that for what it was. And then I got interested. I had to close the cafe. And I watched that community kind of uh, dissipate. And I was like, wow, that was really dependent on that one structure and it wasn't quite as um, resilient as I thought it might be. So then I got thinking, well, how do we how do we set that up without needing uh, a festival, a Burning Man or a cafe or one person? Because a lot of the time these things, you know, you look through history, they tend to revolve around a charismatic person or a particular event. And what my passion is and the, the big question that I'm dealing with is how do we set up community for community's sake? not secondary to something else, but as a primary experience and function. What does that look like? And um, what can we learn from our heritage and our ancestry of, you know, hundreds of thousands of years of living in that context? So was it at the cafe that you sort of had the first realization that it was community that you were kind of yeah. seeking? Yeah, it was. It was through particularly specific events as well. Like what I'm fascinated by and I'm, I'm writing about at the moment is like a, what I'm thinking of as community architecture. Mm. So um, basically the, the events that really triggered it were the open mic and the jam night. So jam night would be a group of lots of different people coming and we'd all just sing songs together. And 
it'd be Beatles songs. We'd have the words printed out. And it sounds simple, but it, it's really profound. I mean, religious groups have been doing it for hundreds of years for a reason. Like coming together and singing really, really opens your heart and it puts you in a space of just kind of resonance with each other. So that was one. But then the thing that really did it for me was the open mic, which um, built up and got really popular around town. And it was a place where people could come and share their stories, share their songs, share their music, their performance, or sometimes just share what was going on inside of them. And that started to build something because we're meeting once a week. We're seeing each other from different angles. We're seeing each other perform. We're seeing each other be vulnerable. And yeah, just these these contexts that we don't usually have in modern life with a bit of time just to, to see the different shades of each other and start to feel like we're walking through life. Um, I think there's kind of a whole different model. It's this whole different... I think of it as kind of neo-tribalism of, of a whole different way of being. It, it's subtle, but it's markedly different. Instead of thinking of yourself as like a, a family member and part of a nation state who kind of goes to their job and then catches up with their friends on the weekend, you s I've started to identify myself first and foremost as a community member. And I let friendship and work and joy all kind of mingle into this one entity and it's much more streamlined and it gives me a, a, a much fuller sense of living and connection with other people. So yeah, it started off with these, these few events at the cafe and kind of grew from there. And do you think like the first, so you sort of had this realization that that's what you were seeking mm. and that that was sort of the glue mm. and then your first inclination to actually want to like intentionally create something. Yeah. I'm sort of curious like where you started yeah. and how that sort of evolved a yeah. bit. Um, I think one of the things that you said the other day when we were talking mm -hmm. in the cafe was, um, and something that I think about a lot, like there is, I think the level of, of our internal lives where community and living in a very sort of like uncivilized prehistoric way is innate and mm -hmm. natural. And having said that though, there are, many layers I feel like that need to be sort of like addressed and peeled off before mm -hmm. we can get back to that. Yeah. Um, and I think when I, when I first started this journey and I sort of recognize like, Oh, this isn't who we are. Mm -hmm. Like we're who we were for hundreds of thousands of years, not yeah. just for the past, you know, short little history of civilization. Yeah. Um, but it's not that simple. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I'm curious what sort of journey you went on <clears throat> and whether there was a sort of like, uh, just like where you recognize this was going to be more complex than you yeah. first imagined. Yeah, that was a funny moment. So <laughs> to give a bit of context to that, I've been on a healing journey of my own for like 15 years with uh, ME, also known as chronic fatigue, picked up a few different diagnoses, but essentially, yeah, day to day dealing with quite a lot of adversity and that sent me on uh, a healing journey because Western medicine didn't have too much to offer. So I turned over every rock of alternative medicine, all the emotional, psychological tools, and I didn't realize that that process actually primed me to be ready for the kind of community context that I want to create. And so it was when we were going we were moving the cafe, we had to move venues, and uh, it was actually quite a beautiful moment. I called a meeting to just everyone that wanted to get more involved, maybe in the next version of the cafe. And this, this collection of people that rocked up, was it was ridiculous. It was amazing. I didn't know half of them. There was like solar engineers and lawyers. One of the leading ad advertising executives in the country was there. 
And as I was talking about this kind of like humble vegan Whole Foods cafe, I was like, wait a minute. Why don't we do something a bit bigger? Why don't we start a collective? And it just kind of came out of me and I didn't know what that meant. And people were like, yeah, that sounds fun. And so we just started to meet once a week and um, it just lit me up. Suddenly we were in this context of like a bigger vision of, for me, it's two pronged. It's about creating love and nurturing and healing for the individual so that they can have a sense of belonging and purpose um, because most of us just seem so fractured and kind of, yeah, kind of wounded by the, the culture that we've been brought up in. And then the other half of it is to use that increased sense of capacity and well-being to create change in the world, to come together and kick ass because we, we're so kind of alienated and these massive existential challenges are really overwhelming when you're one person. So it was... That was the idea that, that came forth and it didn't take long, a few meetings for me to realize like, whoa, okay, if we really want to do something that's going to have a kind of flat-ish hierarchical structure and we're going to take everyone's opinions into account and we're going to have people from all different countries and all different ages working together, people's shadow comes up, people's ego arises because they, they often haven't been given the, the, the space or the time to have their voice heard in this context. Um, I saw it in myself. I saw it in everyone. So it was in that moment that I'm like, huh, this might not be as quick or as easy as I'm imagining. I think we need to take a few steps back to take a few steps forward. So that sent me down the path of like, well, what do we need? What are we needing to learn how to lean in close to each other? I think it's like a dance where you lean in a bit, you do a project, you rub up against each other, you find where the edges are, you lean back, you maybe work on yourself and you lean in and then hopefully that gets more and more graceful over time. But that's, yeah, that's kind of psychological, uh, emotional work that, you, that we all kind of, it's like a Pandora's box. It, we're so tightly pressured in our in our existences that we kind of just distract ourselves from that so community for me is it's an initiation and it's a huge invitation to start to look at yourself and to be mirrored by the people around you that's <laughs> really intense it's worth it the love and the joy and it's just given me oh, so much but it's really challenging and I, I want to be really clear and honest and upfront about that with people when I'm talking about creating these community contexts of like, this is going to be one of the most difficult things you've ever done. And you're going to have to, to really to, to step into yourself and, and look at what's going on. So yeah. yeah, it's a big process. Yeah, totally. I, the sort of tagline to my unofficial tagline to my podcast and something that really helped me sort of go on this own journey, my own journey with all of this was mm. like fix yourself to fix the world. Yeah. But if you try to do the sort of external work before you've mm. looked at yourself, you're probably not only going to be unsuccessful, but you could do harm and damage. Yeah. Um, so what are some of those things once you sort of had this realization? Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the um, like activities or uh, yeah. concepts that you felt needed to be explored with yeah. these people and how did you... So I went with this idea of collective. I like the word collective. It's kind of like, it's kind of up for interpretation. It hasn't been too tarred by too many different ideas. Community does carry a lot of baggage with it, I find. Um, so I had this idea of like, well, let's start a collective. What does that mean? And then I came across this word neo-tribalism, which has only really surfaced fairly recently. 
And that's this idea of like, hey, we were living in harmony for hundreds of thousands of years. Where's that gone? You know, the whole myth that it was a brutal, savage existence is just, just proven wrong. A lot of the anthropology, particularly in the 60s and 70s, just paints these, you know, rather ideal lifestyles. And it's like, huh, okay, so we don't have to totally reinvent the wheel. We've just got to remember all the wisdom that we accrued. And I like to think of it as combining the the wisdom of our original culture with the intelligence of the modern culture. And that's where the neo um, tribalism comes in because, you know, civilization has given us this really rich, profound sense of individuality, which, you know, can get us out of balance, but it's also, it's really beautiful and profound. And how do we combine that with a, with a collective context? So that was the broader question. And I thought, all right, well, I came up with this idea for the conscious change collective. So the idea being that it's about deepening your own connection to yourself, your awareness, your own growth, and then kicking ass. Because we find ourselves, we're up against the wall. We've got a couple of decades to really shift how we're, how we're going about our things or the, or the whole thing's going to come crashing down. So it's like, all right, we're going to utilize the power of community to make change. That's the idea. So how can we kind of come together to empower each other? And so what that's looked like to begin with is... Um, We've been experimenting with what we call pods, which are groups of, uh, ideally, it's about six people, and we've been doing mixed gender, where you meet together once a week for anywhere up to four, five, six months for about three hours, and you just share. It's kind of like a shared men's and women's group, so it's kind of process work, shadow work, um, group therapy. I think a large part of the future narrative, which I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of as a collective blooming. This is a name I'm giving to this vision, this narrative that I want to kind of play out through community. And a big part of that is being able to hold each other, being able to realize that we don't need to rely on centralized governments and corporations to make the changes. We've got to do it ourselves. So how can we hold one another through this process? We don't need to be experts with degrees in psychotherapy to learn how to listen and to learn how to inquire with each other. And Oh, the pods have been really profound and quite challenging as well because there's this kind of pace at which you can unfurl all of your armor that you've been carrying for years. And so I kind of feel like if we just had like a blank slate, setting up these collectives would be quite easy, but we're having to undo generations and generations of trauma. So we have to be really careful. So yeah, just a bit of a sidetrack. But one of the most interesting things I've found in the community journey is what happens when someone really shows themselves to you. Because what I've been finding is that we have many, many parts inside of us. Um, and some of them aren't so pretty. I like to think that they're all there to service in different ways and we can kind of honor them and give them space. But some of them are, are pretty gross, pretty shadowy. And we don't usually show them to each other. But the pod context, the community context gives us an opportunity, whether we like it or not, often for that to come out. And there's been a few moments where we've really seen someone in that state and it can be hard to love them in that state. And I think this is the limiting factor on how effective our communities can be. How much can we truly love someone in their totality? Which means that we need to be able to see the darkness in them, which means to be able to love the darkness in ourselves. Right. So you start to spiral into some pretty deep spaces with people. And if you can't navigate that, you might have done more damage than good. Because at that point, the thing can fracture. People feel like, oh, I don't want to reveal myself that way again. So, you know, you, we've got to be gentle with the pacing. So, yeah, pods has been one part of that. Um, 
open mics, performing together has been another thing we've been doing. We run events together in our community. We put on festivals. We have an event called The Gathering that we run each year where we go away for three days and we just stay together in a, in a space, in a house, and we eat food and we just be, which reminds me of um, when I was in the Amazon years ago spending time with tribal people. Um, I was actually in Abhijanya, which is where John of God is based. I don't know if you've heard about him. Mm-mm. He's like the most renowned energetic healer in the world he's a psychic surgeon um and he's pretty intense character he's got his own town thousands of people every day come you have to wear white it's all free you you have a big line and he kind of uh analyzes you and then does psychic surgery he cuts some people's eyes with a scalpel and i mean that's a whole nother trip it's an amazing story i was there visiting visiting him just to check that out and i met some uh some brazilian indians there and I got talking to them and the question that they asked me was like, well, you know, like, when do you go back to the trees? And I didn't really know what they meant. But every year for two months, wherever they are all over Brazil, they just come back to their lands and they just be together. They don't do anything. They just sit around and eat and, and just spend time with each other. And that's kind of like the mini version of what the gathering is. And it's just yeah, it's really powerful to step. You don't realize how much of a momentum is around our day-to-day life. And to get yourself out of those contexts, there's kind of liminal spaces that we can create for each other where we can kind of be all of ourselves. So, yeah, we've got the gathering, we've got the pods, we've got a, a community cafe center where we meet each day. So trying to just bring in these different aspects that will uh, slowly over time create the context for... I mean, my dream and vision is to set up like a full-on neo-tribe to really bond with each other in a way equivalent to what the hunter-gatherers had in a modern-day context. And I was originally wanting to build eco-villages. I'm I'm part of an organisation called BioArc that builds designs for that. But looking at the history of that, I just realized how tumultuous it was and how much of a huge step it is to start living together straight away. So I think what this kind of innovation around this collective idea, and there's a few of them popping up. There's um, one called End Spiral in Wellington that's been doing this long before I had this idea. They've been around for like eight years. Pockets of it are starting to happen everywhere. It seems to be emerging this idea of like, all right, intentional community containers that don't involve us all having sex together and having a religious leader or moving in together. And, um, yeah, there's some challenges that come up with it because we're so used to our privacy and autonomy that it's very easy to just slip back into that. But if we do that, then we never really cultivate that context of togetherness that when people taste that, you can see that it's the best experience they've ever had. It feels like the, the panacea for all of our modern ills. It's like this wonder wonder experience that um i think is our innate birthright as humans that we've been denied yeah yeah i think about privacy a lot um Mm. and something i sort of stumbled into unexpectedly is like i think vulnerability and sharing and openness especially in the context of let's say like therapy has been something i i feel pretty comfortable in um and even sharing with friends and However, my life has become a lot more communal these days. And mm. so I'm 
this friend is friends with that friend and that friend was in a relationship with this person and I've been in a relationship. Yeah. It's very triangulated. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's been a sort of fascinating journey for me to be like, okay, well, these are all the people that I'm close to, but they're close to all the other people that I'm close to. Mm-hmm. So I imagine like within these pods, mm. if you guys are all spending so much time together, mm-hmm. that part of that shadow work is sort of dealing with your own relationships to one another. Yes. And, and then what, like, what is comfortable to be shared and what isn't and who knows what. And um, I think privacy is something that I grapple with more than anything. Something I guess that I feel most disconnected to in terms of how it's set up in modern Mm. day. I I, uh, took a lot of classes in college about family life, Mm -hmm. um, the nuclear family. Mm -hmm. And I talked a lot about the sort of socially constructed nuclear family and how we sort of, physically, you know, enclosed ourselves in this space, which led to a lot of this privacy that is not, you know, quote unquote, natural or innate. Um, but it's complicated because now we're where we're at. Right. And there's all these different people and we don't live in prehistory. And I'm curious how, if that's sort of been part of the navigation of like, yeah, okay, maybe I'm comfortable sharing about my relationship with my mother, but what happens when, you know, I want to talk to someone about someone else and, I don't want to betray them, but, you yeah, know. <laughs> yeah, that's a really rich question. Yeah. And it's just reminding me of just how much uh, me and like my community, we feel like pioneers. We sh- it feels like we shouldn't be pioneers. It feels like these are really basic human questions, mm-hmm. but it's like, yeah, we're having to like write the guidebook for this kind of thing and, and hoping to collaborate with other communities to like figure out the best way. But So with the pods, we started off with having partners in the same pod uh, romantic partners. And that was actually really beautiful in a way because mm. you could see your partner in a way that you wouldn't normally talk about things that they might not in front of you. But it also limits to what you can share to some degree. So then in the next experiment, we've, we've, we split partners up. We tried to, but partnerships can shift quite quickly. Right. Suddenly there's new <laughs> romantic constellations. And yeah, it's tricky. And we're coming up right now in the community against that question of like privacy because it's we're very much in each other's lives to some degree. And I think we're now discovering the the difficulty of good community. As much as you get mirrored, you get the growth. Sometimes you just can't hide. There's nowhere to hide. And it's it's a lot. And you have to realize that your public reputation might not be... You're going to get judged in different ways. You can't always communicate the whole story as, as you might want to at yeah, I, I think eventually we've just got to be okay with bearing all. My intuition just tells me of like, well, let's just go for it. Let's yeah. just share and see what we can handle. And um, I guess that's more of what the original tribal context was, you know. It's just kind of all laid out there. And I don't know how to get that middle ground. I tend to think my, my end vision of this, I don't want to like overwhelm people. For me, a collective isn't like a polyamorous, neo-tribe, like straight away. Like that's my particular kick. I'd like to take things in that direction. But what I'm finding with collectives is they can actually be quite, um, they can suit everyone's needs and they don't need to push you beyond your boundaries. Like anyone can participate no matter what your background is. But I feel like we've really got to look at how we do, how we raise kids. I think we really need to be raising them together in groups. I think we've got to look at how we do love. I think we're... So many of us are hurting each other because we have connection to many different people, but we don't have the training or context to explore that. So I don't think there's much of a middle ground. I think we're going to kind of keep pushing and going for that. 
But the first people to do that, it's very difficult. Right. So I'm hoping the next generations will be inheriting a context where that's much more natural. And we're going to have to be brave and just kind of really hold each other gently and be compassionate and patient with each other. Yeah. Because we've all got a lot of hang-ups. And, uh, yeah, when you do this deep, close work together, they, they, um, they definitely come to the surface. Yeah, I think so too. And I think, I mean, I've, I've definitely experienced there's like this push and pull of this person has, has really been vulnerable and open and shared something with me, which makes me form, feel more comfortable in doing that as well. Yeah. And I've understood that maybe in a more broad sense with the podcast, like that vulnerability breeds vulnerability. Yeah. But now I think I had very sort of like unconscious, immature, codependent relationships before. And now that I'm sort of aware and intentional about them, yeah. um, you know, I see and experience a lot more within the context of a relationship. And mm. I can definitely sort of sense like, you know, oh, I'm comfortable going to this person because of how they've acted with me in that same situation. And yeah. I think in a community or a collective or a group, yeah. it it's not only like all in, but all of us have to sort of be all in, yes. you know, because if that one person or two people, all they're showing are, you know, sort of the external pretty picture. Yeah then it sort of causes a, oh, that's a such wedge. That's a good point. Yeah. There's like, I mean, there's two fascinating points that come to mind when you speak about that. And one of them is like the, like the lowest common denominator of vulnerability or openness will limit the whole pod or group from going somewhere. Yeah. So there's this like fascinating dynamic of, wow, like if one person isn't opening up, then that's going to stop all of us from doing it so you start to realize that we all we're all in it together a lot more and it, it's just flies in the face of this kind of individualistic culture now of like well we can only really thrive when we're all thriving which means that you kind of you have to go a lot slower and i guess that was one of the first humble lessons i learned a friend of mine um rodney shared with me in community it was beautiful it was like look joe your ideas are great we love it but like slow down a bit you know if you want to um go fast go alone and if you want to go far go together and it was like yeah that's that's really beautiful wisdom it's hard for me i just want to like i just want to get there i've had a taste of what it's like and selfishly i want to live in this neo-tribal context right. it's just like any other way of living for me now seems like a pale imitation yeah. and i'm like champing at the bit but you can only go as fast as compassion and patience allows so you've got to kind of you've got to you start to get to this question of like, well, where's everyone at in their development? And if you start to match people that are a lot earlier in their path, then that's going to be trickier for the people further in their path to have the experience they might want to have. It's like a Olympic gymnast team. There's yeah. only so many moves you can do with beginners. And so that's a strategic question that I have right now. I mean, my vision is that we have collectives all over the world. I'm thinking big with it. I'd, I'd like them to slowly take root and to people to, to take less of their bandwidth from families, friends, works, religions, and start to create more gently for community. Because I think that with decentralized technology and the way that we want to kind of reconnect to the land and each other and our food processes, they can become a political system, they can become an economic system, so they can really start to be a very healthy way for us to relate on a societal level, not just as individuals. Um, but as we pioneer them what level of awareness and uh, life experience do you have if you get a group of kind of life ninjas together then we get a much better sense of what it can be 
But if you have a few people that you want to take on that journey, you've got to go at that pace. So it's these difficult decisions. And that raises the other question. For me, the difference between like community and what I'm thinking of as a collective is that someone knows they're in it or not. Community is often like, oh, yeah, I'm part of the kind of wider community. And it's like, well, okay, you're just assuming that. But mm. what that means is there, there might not be that same level of commitment. And when you've got different levels of commitment, then you've just got problems. They're just going to arise. So you get to this tricky question of like, do you put a membrane around something? Could, for what I want to create, yeah. You need different concentric circles. You need different membranes. Um, but then you've got to have some level of exclusion, inclusion. Then you've got a power structure. Who's choosing who comes in? And then you get all these questions just arrive straight away in this one moment of like, yeah. well, who put you in a position of power? And are you going to vote? And are we at a point to have a political system? And then it's like, whoa, <laughs> it starts to get really complicated. And it's not just like a, a hobby. It's like, whoa, that's like three full-time jobs. Yeah. Um, and yet I think it's worth it. So I feel like I'm now going to dedicate my life to that. And uh, I'm comfortable now with the fact that, yeah, Membranes are important. Commitment's important. And you need to be able to have a system of excluding people as well as including people. And you've got to test them out before you let them in. And, yeah, that's just how what the tribes worked and how a lot of kind of um, successful communities operate is with really firm guidelines and boundaries. Um, kind of got to be cruel to be kind sometimes. The, it's like in a, it's like in a, a class, you know. The teachers will always say that the, the few kids that – acting up take up like 80% of their energy and attention and I think we really I think there's a pressing need to innovate around this community structure for me it's not just for the fun of it it's like I really think this is the only way we're going to be able to change the world because it's going to nurture us enough to be able to keep walking together and not feel so isolated to deal with the issues of climate change and inequality and the migration that's going to be happening and I really think we need these kind of empowered local communities that have a connection to their own renewable energy sources, their own sources of food, their own local industry. And it's the work of Helena Norberg-Hodge around localization. And yeah, it all kind of dovetails into that. But um, I think communities often left out. It seems to be like this not so sexy part of the whole picture. People talk about new technology and blockchain and stuff. And I'm like, okay, but what is the, what is the real thing of value in life? It's your human connections. And that's your real security as well. I mean, when it all comes down to it, if you're part of a thriving network of a few hundred people with different skills, then what else? you don't even need money at that point. You just need some soil and some sunlight and you've got, you've yeah. got protection and care. Man, there's so many levels of that <laughs> that mm. I could respond to. Yeah. I'm like, how do I like tie six different thoughts into <laughs> one question? Um, yeah, I'm also extremely impatient, which is... Yeah. I just like want it and I want it now. Sure. You know, one thing that I think I had to learn too in my own journey of self-awareness was that I caught myself having the um, perspective of like, well, if I can do it, they can do it. Mm. And I had a, ther a wonderful therapist for a while who was like, that's just not true. You mm. know, I think, think of what you have, right? Like you had... <clears throat> at least one parent who is extremely loving and emotionally yeah. intimate. And yes. you had the financial privilege to afford therapy mm. and you had the privilege to get an education and yes. you, you traveled, especially mm. at a young age. And that sort of made me think about like all these different levels of things that are necessary, I think for us to kind of like wake up to ourselves. Um, and then I also had this uh, sort of 
epiphany about, um, I guess, grief and trauma. When I sort of was able, like when I looked at my childhood, for example, I, I looked back and I was like, you know, and end the story I was told was like, well, it wasn't that bad. You know, you had a roof over you ha- your head. Your both of your parents were alive. You went to school. You went to summer camp. You grew up in suburbia. It was fine. Um, which, you know, neglected to address the pieces that may have been missing, um, specifically like emotionally emotional intimacy on behalf of parents and just sort of like how I was raised and in what context and in what society and did I have a community of adults raising me or was I sort of insular insular in this bubble and it took a while for me to finally accept that I may have had some trauma in my childhood without and feeling really badly like I'm placing blame or um, <clears throat> it finally was really helpful for me to be like, hey, I was hurt. Like there were certain things that happened that imprinted something in me that caused me to make decisions that didn't serve me in a positive way, right? And maybe thinking about it as trauma is just because of the way culture has defined it is is too extreme. So uh-huh. maybe just think about it as imprints, right? Sure. Like things yeah. that affected us nice that caused word, us yeah. yeah, to make decisions that weren't the greatest. Yeah. And then I sort of took that further of thinking like, <clears throat> it's a beautiful thing. I think, I think what I see a lot with people our age in their twenties and thirties now, mm-hmm. um, I do think we're sort of waking up. It's a progression. Like we're progressing toward greater awareness about ourselves and the world that we live in. Yeah. Um, and so to sort of be able to have the wherewithal to have the awareness that maybe there was some trauma is actually a gift, yes. right? It's not something I should feel badly about. Mm. And when I look back on previous generations, yeah. my mother, her mother, yeah. it was too much. It was too much for them to yeah. wake up, right? Like they yes. didn't have the tools that I had. Definitely. Having said all of that though, what do you do when you're in spaces with people that are at different levels on that scale, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and to your point about like, can that be integrated? Mm those different levels yeah um or is there some or maybe the answer is probably i don't know but yep. is there some need to sort of like separate within those i think groups? they can be integrated yes i think there's a need to separate and i think broadly these collective structures have, for the first couple of decades have just got to be like amazing healing machines that allows people at all different levels to come in and find where they can connect But uh, an example in in our community is like I've learned now that I'm not going to get into a pod with just anyone because I'm going to end up holding a lot of space and going into their story a lot. Um, I'm going to make sure that I'm resonating to some degree with them. And yet I'm going to go to an open mic or a jam night with anyone. And that's where the community cafe comes in. And that's where I think there's quite an elegant opportunity that if you do, some of us are way more privileged than others. I'm extremely privileged the life that I've lived. And um, what you can do with that is you can create a core of people that have had those opportunities to do the deeper work together to then hold space in different ways for people that haven't had that. And what might that look like is um, just these these community cafes. You can't underestimate the power of that, 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 that they can – people that have, you know, really carrying a lot of imprints, you know, they, they might have a lot of social anxiety, they're really not comfortable in a lot of context, they can just come and sit and they can just be part of the event and they can feel the love, they can feel the goodness coming over them. And I've watched over a period of months 
they start to melt a little bit. And it's the most beautiful thing. They start to thaw. Maybe they come to a kind of an ecstatic dance event and you see them opening up. And I've watched this process. And the next book I want to write is actually this system of badges, which is kind of copying from the scout idea of like, ah, oh, all these little openings that community allows us to have, like your kind of nonviolent communication badge or your like dispute resolution badge or kind of like your shadow work badge. Um, I mean, all these fun ways of like, ah, these are the experiences that have allowed you to get there to kind of map it out. And again, I wish I didn't have to innovate around this stuff. It's like we've had 100 years of psychotherapeutic research, but I don't see out there these kind of like easy steps, and maybe I just haven't found them yet, of, of, of how do you help people unfurl bit by bit? How do you create the context for that? So it's just about concentric rings, and I think... The, the most beautiful, but the, okay, there is a ratio though. So you need to have, I don't know what it is yet, but like if you've got 12 people really humming together in synchronicity, in synchron, um, synchronization, sorry, and in, in, in union and singing together, feeling good, you can have like maybe two or three people that really are feeling out of it be pulled into that. Um, and so that's my mechanism for change. That's the best I've come up with, is that if we can create big enough groups of really resonant people, then individual by individual, we can expose others to that and invite them into the story. But you need to have a pathway. You need to have, like, steps that they can come into. Um, and so it's like a whole journey. Yeah. And at that stage, you've got to have elders in the community. You've, you've got to have positions of responsibility. You've got to make sure what tends to happen in community context is that all the responsibility goes on one or two people and often goes behind the scenes um, largely unsung, even though they get a lot of respect. Um, yeah, we've got to kind of formalize this. And this is where I'm still thinking these ideas through because I don't want to bring money into these contexts. But... At some point, you need to start to recognize that there's a lot of work involved in this and it's a big commitment. But everyone I know that's touched on these community structures, they're kind of like, okay, this is important work. Let's do it. So, yeah. I feel like we could do a whole podcast on just like one aspect yeah, of any definitely. of this. It's <laughs> um, a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, I think I'd love to talk about sort of when you pursued all of this like what different you know traveling reading etc mm -hmm. like some of the different avenues you pursued in that regard yeah but one final point I wanted to make about the whole community and levels thing too is like I think I had all of these realizations but then I also sort of had to have the realization that like it was okay for me to desire to have people on a similar level to me and yeah. I think it's imperative because like I need to be mirrored like yes. I <clears throat> I love love and feel very comfortable in the environment of like holding space for other people yeah. and allowing them to sort of grow and learn. Yeah. But <clears throat> I also need relationships and mm. situations where people can challenge me Definitely. and that I, someone can do that for me. Yeah. Um, so to sort of like just have humility around the fact that all of those things are okay yeah. and we need all of them. Um, so aside, I know you did like, I'd love to just hear about that process for you when you're like, okay, I need to learn more about this yeah. and educate myself. Yeah. Um, and I sort of had a similar moment of like, wow, I'm, I'm, I want something, but I really know so little about it. Sure. Um, so what were some of the things that you did to sort of to learn? Yeah. Learn. So in terms of like reading and research, 
I, there's a f- couple of books that really impacted me. Um, Daniel Quinn, Beyond Civilization. So he wrote Ishmael. Have you heard mm, about yeah, those yeah. books? Yeah. That was his last book. He just died recently, actually. Um, and it was funny. He, I heard him speak about it because the whole Ishmael thing was like this subtle metaphor of how we change the world. And by the end of his career, he's like, no, actually do the things. And so his last book, Beyond Civilization, was just this short bullet points like the tribal way of life worked for a reason. We need to find a way to get beyond the civilization game. Yeah. Um, so that book really impacted me. Um, Chris Ryan and all of his work has really impacted me as well. Uh, M. Scott Peck, A Different Drum. He wrote um, The Road Less Traveled, which was his more well-known book. But, like, he was amazing. He was a, a psychotherapist. And in this, this is something I want to get more into. I have a bit with some of the pods. But in the 60s and 70s, they were doing some pretty crazy stuff. They were doing encounter groups. I'm not sure if you've heard uh-huh. about them. You might have seen footage of them where they just, like, get a group of people and they just stay. They can be total strangers. They'll stay in a room together for like 48 hours and just see what happens and just go for it and really push the boundaries of conditioning and they'll end up screaming and crying and fighting and like, you know, the raw primal nature of humanity will come out. And I feel like even just talking about it, I get shivers because I feel like we've got all these layers to undo, these primal screams we've got to get rid of. And we've done a bit of that in some of the pods I've been a part of, but it gets pretty heavy pretty quick. And so I've kind of pulled back from that a little bit. That's like a, an end goal I'd get into. Um, but yeah, his work was really powerful. But then the beautiful thing is I'm starting to see this pop up all over the world. This is like a, an idea whose time has come. Everyone that I'm talking to is like, yeah, I'm looking for community. I really want it. We've yeah. lost our religion. Religion was really good for that. It got us all together. We sung songs. We sh- shared foods and rituals. We're lacking it. And so, yeah, there's, there's collective type structures starting to pop up. But um, it's hard to get it right. It's like what you spoke to about the, 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 the limits and the boundaries and the containers. Because if you go to just like an open community event, often the, the energies are kind of all over the place. And I leave feeling a little bit drained or a little bit like, oh, I saw what was trying to happen here, but I don't think I ever want to do that again. So, yeah, smaller pockets of higher resonance, um, I think, is where we start from. Because if you give people a bland taste of community you know the the classic example is you sit in a circle and everyone shares their opinions for seven hours and you know you don't make a decision then that turns people off so i think we're gonna gotta make it sexy again we're gonna make it a bit a little bit exclusive like all right you gotta you gotta have your shit together you gotta be on it to be part of this story we're gonna rock it we want to really make change we want to be like an empowered collective working on animal rights on you know sustainable energy on political reform and and that's my vision around it. I was really into oh, Murray Bookchin. Have you heard about mm-hmm. him before? Oh, he's amazing. He's such a powerhouse of a thinker. He spelt out this whole idea of um, libertarian municipalism, which he then uh, turned into communalism was a simple word. He was one of the leading anarchist thinkers, but then he just got so tired of how much ego and hot air there was in the world of um, anarchy that he just kind of, he wrote a really famous essay in the the late 80s that just slammed anarchism and kind of killed it for a few years. But his whole thinking was like, look, politically, the only way we can do this is to look back at the times when we came together in terms of like the Paris communes, the New England communities, um, our tribal histories, um, the Athenian democracies, and it needs to be at a human level. 
we need to relate. We need to bring that civic level of engagement back to each other. If it's so centralized, we lose any sense of agency and you're just going to get externalization, destruction of ecosystems. So he just said we have to bring it back to the community at a political level as well. So that really got me thinking uh, along those lines. But to be honest, my flavor of community building and what I'm thinking with collectives is really the inner work. That seems to be the path I've been on because of my health. Some other collectives start from a place of like, let's make money together um, or, or change and money. Like I'd say there's examples where they start like a, a co-working space and they have like a few little businesses where they share income. And then over a few years, what that seems to look like is they're like, oh, we're kind of in community now and we kind of need to do the deeper work together because we want to go to that place. My suggestion is that maybe we start with that and we just lead in from like, yeah, we've got a lot of healing to do together and then build on top of that. And once there's a level of trust and healing, then you start to bring the project that's got the money involved. And then maybe you start to bring in more of a political story and then maybe you start to live together. But take it slow just to be humble and not to push people beyond where they're at because it's tempting to rush. But if you do, it just gets really sticky. And then you kind of just want to run back away from your community. Yeah. Yeah, And I know you did a lot of travel too. I'm curious what your thoughts are. Because when I first had this idea too, I was like, I want to come up with a model and I want it to be able to be replicated. Uh Um, And then I think over time, uh, in some of what I sort of was learning and experienced, I thought maybe I need to dial it down. And I just really need to be like focused on what I'm doing and what's happening in my backyard and like create a ripple, but it has to start in the center. You know, it can't start externally. Mm. Um, and, and so, and there was also this guy, he's really cool. This guy, Theaster Gates. Have you heard about him? He's a a great name. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) He's an artist and sort of an activist in Chicago and Mm -hmm. he has a really cool Ted talk and he bought a bunch of sort of, you know, land that was land and dilapidated buildings and just a lot of structures that were doing nothing and sitting vacant in, um, in some, you know, poor neighborhoods in Chicago. And he <clears throat> recreated them using a lot of found materials and materials from the homes, uh, the homes and, and created different spaces, a library, an art space, a meeting space, a, a cool. performing art space. And um, in this TED Talk, I actually think it was like in the questions afterwards, mm-hmm. someone sort of asked him like, how do you take this and extend it further? You yeah. know, how do you take this idea and mobilize community in the way that you have elsewhere? Yeah. And he sort of chuckled a little bit and said like, I can't tell you how many people who have given me money or who, you know, I want to have give me money or anything. They always ask about like, what's your um, expansion plan? Like yeah. how do you, how do you, you know, continue to grow your innovation? Um, and what he said was like, I just, at some point, I mean, what I say now all the time and what I believe is like, I can't replicate myself elsewhere. I hope that, like, this is me. This is the world I've created. This is Theaster's world. And people can come into that world and help me create that world. But ultimately, I hope my work inspires other people to create their own worlds. Um, And I see that a lot in my travels now. Mm. Even in uh, people's, you know, I have a friend that lives out in Joshua Tree Mm -hmm. who hasn't intentionally created a community at all, but he has a space with a lot of places to stay and friends come and visit. And it's like, he's very sort of uh, artistic in a way. So Uh he's created a world and you go there and you're like, that's his world, you know? And I'm very curious and excited to see what my world looks like, Mm -hmm. right? And you have a world Mm -hmm. and all these people create these worlds. So I guess my question is like, what have you 
so I, I assume there are some things that are shared across that could be shared across all these worlds. Right? Definitely. Um, but the sort of the individual nature of different communities mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah, whether or not something can be replicated in multiple places or um, if it really needs to come up, you know, come from the ground up mm. uniquely. I'll let you chew your chocolate cake. <laughs> <You're laughs> Shout out to Tom and Plant Baked Foods for this delicious snack. It is really delicious. <laughs> um, okay, so yeah, that's a fascinating question for me. This strikes at the heart of what I'm getting up to, what I'm, what I'm working on with this book I'm writing. I had my world per se. The cafe I was running was, yeah, that. And then I realized that that's not sustainable because as soon as I left for a few months, mm. the whole thing just melted down. Right. And what that enables is really fascinating though because I think power structures are a really important question obviously when it comes to human relations. And what I found myself doing and what I want to keep trying to do until I come up with a really beautiful model for how to share the power, someone kind of needs to usurp all the power I find and then make it kind of null so that other people can't use it. So I think what these kind of leaders you're speaking about are probably doing that where they're not reigning with a heavy hand. They're just making sure no one else is. So that's one mode, but I think we've got to get beyond that. I think there really is like a model. I I want to try and create it. I want to work with people all around the world to open source and come up with like, what are the practices we need? What are the rituals? What are the healing uh, modalities? What are the, the leadership models of like, yeah, like a, a working neo tribe. Because if you, you look at history, the hunter gatherers, they had a similar model. I mean, there's immediate return um, and delayed return hunter gatherer tribes, and the fascinating thing is how different they are. There's this common conception that they're all the same, but they're radically different. The immediate return hunter gatherer tribes were the truly egalitarian tribes, and they're the ones that. I'm most inspired by it because they have gender equality. The kids are raised by everyone. They literally don't have any possessions. So immediate return means that they just process things as they go. They don't have as much stuff and hierarchy. And they had a similar model. You look at like the Penan people in Malaysia or the um, some of the pygmy tribes in the Congo, they're remarkably similar. And they've developed like social technologies for how to stop ego getting out of control. It's called reverse... Um, dominator hierarchies where they'll kind of mock the guy that won the 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 the, that got the best animal in the hunt and that's what i want to create and i think that's universal i don't think we're that different around the world so i'm really excited to try and work on this blueprint and i guess i'm just prototyping right now but um i think it could be quite a formal structure of like a, a guidebook for how you how you go about these things and i hope we can just add in different parts like if I thought of like what are all the activities that you'd get up to, it's like open mic nights, jam nights, natural building, uh, f- sort of philosophy sharing nights, um, healing workshops, uh, crafting together, going on hikes, meditation, spiritual practices, making music together. Um, so they've all got a kind of holistic vibe to them, but um, doing them all with a shared group of people over time is just such a transformational experience, um, and I think we can, I think we can create re- replicable models. But I think the um, 
the community center is the, is the heart of it. But my way of spreading it will be to set up these kind of Whole Foods cafes at the start of it that begin with an event because th- then you just give people a taste and you build from there. Awesome. I'd love to talk more about power. Power. <laughs> power structures, <laughs> leadership. Before we started recording, um, I spoke about how one of my intentions in starting the podcast was to do the very best that I possibly could Mm. in walking the talk Mm -hmm. and not using this platform or any position in which I find myself leading in any way intentionally or not, Mm. um, not using that position to fulfill some sort of like shadow hole within myself. Mm. Um, but also, you know, just making sure that the, the person that I was, um, showing myself to be in the public sphere was the same as the private sphere. And I think I was, and I think a lot of people are, especially in in any sort of spiritual community. I think we're so hungry for community and to be inspired and to, whether it's lead or follow or, you know, find ourselves in between the two, Uh um, we don't, I, I know for me, like I didn't, I didn't really have a lot of, uh, discernment. I just like, Oh, that sounds good. That person must be telling the truth, you mm. know? And over time I sort of had to be like, I realized I kept thinking like, I'm not coming to terms with who this person is because I don't want to admit that someone could be cruel or someone could hurt me or someone yeah. could have, um, be doing things that were coming from a not so healthy place. Yeah. And it was really, really important to me, uh, in moving forward that I, Again, like, can we fully understand ourselves and not project? I don't know, but at least I'm going to be as mm. aware as I possibly can. Yeah. Um, and I always sort of come back to the cheesy phrase around, like, with great power comes great responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I do think about this in the context of community around, like, should should we feel bad if we you know, if everyone has a role and everyone's good at something, right? Like that person's really good with the kids. That person's really good at um, cooking. That person's really good at gardening. That person's really good at at leading and organizing and structuring, Uh right? Like, is that an an okay and equal role Mm. or is there something inherently negative about that? And, And, you know, where's the line between it being healthy and not healthy? And I'm reading, um, Nisa, mm-hmm. you know, that book, um, it's about a woman, uh, in a hunter gatherer tribe, but the way that they talk about the tribe is that there were leaders, but they just sort of appeared. No one vote for that. No one voted for them. There wasn't any intentional, um, process to find them. It was just like, oh, that person just sort of fell into and assumed that role and is good at it. And it wasn't super organized. It just felt sort of casual in a way. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I'm rambling, but I'd mm. love to hear your thoughts yeah. on, on what you've learned or experienced with that, yeah. um, with yourself, but also yeah. just in what you've experienced with other collectives or communities. I find it's just easiest to rule with an iron fist and just crush dissent as soon <laughs> as it arises. Answer. Yeah, yeah, totally. Kind of modeling myself on the fascists. Yeah, yeah. They dress well. <laughs> you know, dress to impress. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good question. So, oh, what what comes to mind as you say that is like, uh, if we had more time, I think 
I feel like, I don't know whether this is a, a narrative I've bought into that isn't true, that's stressing me out and secretly <laughs> making me unwell, but like, I feel like we're really up against the wall and the next few years are just so critical that we need to get shit done. So because of that, I'm a little less patient for like, all right, we'll give everyone a turn at leadership, which is what I do if we were living, when we get to the, the final outcome, which I'm thinking of as the enlightened global village, that's my name for where I think we want to head to, then I think we're going to have a lot more time to just experience love with each other and to help each other cultivate and really share power around. But in the meantime, I think you kind of want to let the people that are best do the best things because it gets things done quickly. I think you want to balance both. It's, it seems to happen naturally. People tend to gravitate towards these positions of leadership. But then I think you also do want to share it around. So like letting different people facilitate the meetings and, and creating a culture. I think you can get a healthy balance between the two. Um, what I find is dangerous is even when you've got that kind of like the right people in the position, there's these like unspoken power dynamics that emerge. And this is where I'm interested in social technologies in rituals that we can kind of come together of like, oh, hey, you've been accruing a lot of unspoken power. Mm. And like, let's shine a light on that and see it for what it is. Because it's not, it's not that we want to take it away from you, but like we just want to call it out that it's there. Because I was talking with my friend about this in the community recently, Tyler, and we were saying, you know, like, well, does am I going to turn into a monster as I get more power? Because, you know, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And she had the idea of, well, I don't know. She, she was thinking that maybe like power reveals and absolute power reveals absolutely. And I'm finding that a bit. It's like just being in community in general is like the ultimate personal growth. This is kind of the selling point. A lot of people are interested in personal growth around the world, right? And that's like, you want to get in community. Don't leave, stay there. You'll grow faster than any self-help book or course you can do. Leadership even more so because it just like amplifies the reflection. And you do have a lot of opportunity to, to kind of misstep, to kind of and everyone does it differently. So I think we need to prototype, we need to, sorry, profile the different leadership types and just be aware of how each one might misstep so that those around you can hold you accountable and kick your ass a bit lovingly when you do that. I mean, the classic thing is sexuality and the, the pull of people that are drawn to the leaders in a community and the opportunities that creates um, We've seen that again and again through history. That needs to be spoken about. That needs to be like on the table from the get-go. Um, it's brought down so many spiritual groups and it will continue to. And until we find a healthy way to play with that, to recognize that, um, the power dynamics that come with leadership, then we're just going to keep tripping up along the way. Yeah, and I think a lot of it to me also is actually about removing the taboo around power. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I th when I think about like, therapists getting involved with their clients or we have a friend that is considering writing her uh, dissertation about this whole like spiritual guru trend like yeah. shaman self-made shaman uh -huh. thing that's going on uh -huh. um and it very much to me ties into sexuality yeah. i think it's not a coincidence that a lot of these power dynamics manifest in a sexual way mm. but i'm more curious about like if we're constantly sort of being pulled into this and these things keep popping up in totally different cultures and different scenarios with yeah. different people, what is it that we're not talking about? What is yeah. it that we're afraid to look at? Yeah. Where might power be 
attractive and could it be attractive in a way that can lead to something positive yeah. and not negative. Right. Definitely. I mean, I, 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 for my whole life was often attracted to older men. Uh-huh. And at some point I, I had very bad luck with relationships mm. And there was a point at which I had to ask myself the question of like, is it the fact that I'm attracted to people older than me? Is that the problem? Yeah. Or is it the problem that I've just picked the wrong people, uh-huh. right? Like is, 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 po- is power and power dynamics in mm. some way always bad? Yeah. Or if I allowed myself, if I didn't pathologize my own desire and I yeah. sort of explored it in a healthy and aware way, mm. I'm curious what that might teach me about you know, is there anything here to learn that's actually good yeah. and would lead me to have more? Um, and I think it's hard in this day and age with like the Me Too movement uh-huh. and power is, I think seen across the board is just bad. Yeah. And to try to balance like, because I agree, this sort of egalitarian type of uh, community or life with what I think is inherently unavoidable yeah. in leadership and power. Yeah. Like I just, I don't know where all of that fits together, yeah. but I think one big step is probably in stop, like in, in not shaming ourselves for thinking about it or being attracted to it or yeah. finding ourselves within it in some way. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Seeing it for what it is, it exists. It's there. So calling it out and working with it rather than running from it. A thought that comes to mind for me is just good good mentorship and good wisdom to make sure that right. our leaders have mentors that have been through that and can really guide them through it. And again, this kind of badge idea of like, look, before we're really going to trust you with that mantle, like we're going to put you through these experiences so that you, you know what's coming. You know, we don't need to kind of figure it all out for ourselves. I feel that's, that's another part of community that I'm really excited to bring forward is we're lacking this connection between elders and younger people. There's these huge divides between the generations. Uh, in that they're not communicating so much. And there's so much wisdom. There's, it's beautiful. I think it's like an elegant ecosystem that our society has tended to got all wrong, where the older people accrue the power and tend to tell the younger people what to do. That's, you know, simplifying things. But there's a, there's a union that needs to go on of like, we need the wisdom from the older generations and they need that youthful vitality to come through them and that fresh perspective. And if we can rebalance that and then have that, particularly around power, you know, kind of younger people need some schooling in that. We don't tend to get it so easily. No, not at all. And I I think we, you know, I talk about this a lot that I think we as humans tend to overcorrect, right? So we see like, oh, okay, so people in positions of power or people who are older have taken advantage of that power. So therefore it shouldn't exist. We should flip it, right? Yeah. Um, And instead I'm like, well... I think what, I mean, mentorship is still really important. So let's not throw away mentorship. Let's not throw away learning. Let's not throw away being able to be led and taught. Um, Let's have a more nuanced approach and think about like, how can we just do this better? You know, it's one of the criticisms I have with the Me Too movement is like, men acted badly, so therefore men are bad or men were in power, so now women should be in power. Mm -hmm. And my thought is like, I don't know if the the answer yeah. is the 180. I think it's much more complex than that. Yeah. And we're not going to do ourselves any service just from like flip-flopping back into these, right? Like Definitely. Men were bad, so now I get to be angry. Like you were angry, so, you know, two wrongs don't make a yeah. right in just sort of simple terms. 
Um, I'd add one more thing to the power discussion, which yeah. is a slightly controversial but juicy idea we talked about the other day a bit. Of uh, It relates to developmental psychology and being able to call out by having a mechanism for measuring where people are at in their development, you can see whether they're ready for positions of power or not. So this author, um, Hansi Freinhardt, has written this book, The Listening Society, in which he spells out uh, one mode to measure that. He's is a four-part system of like someone's cultural code, their general state during the day, the depth of experience they've had in their lives, um, and also just the complexity with which their mind can think. And it's a little bit of an ugly topic for some people because it leads to a ranking in those things. Mm. But when you combine those four things, I would want leaders in my community that are the highest of those four things. And I'm comfortable enough to go, okay, I'm lower in the hierarchy than that person. Thus, yeah, they should probably be in the position of power more than I should. But we're a little bit hesitant to do that for good reason because of some of the past with eugenics and you know fascism of control. But I think we need to reclaim that because I think if it's unspoken, then you just get this kind of wish wash of different people and skills and abilities. And I think we need to start to call out like what experiences our leaders have and whether they're worthy. I mean, our politicians are a ridiculous example of that. But in the in the community experience, yeah, I'm, I'm open to being more explicit with like, ah, oh, yeah, that person has this, this, this. And so they deserve the position of leadership. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think it goes back to what we were talking about, about being mirrored, right? That mm. I think probably where this can go very wrong is there's one person on one level mm. who's strategic in some way and is putting people around them that maybe don't have that same capacity, who maybe aren't picking up on the extent to which they're a bullshitter. Or, yeah. Right? Um, and, and I feel this with myself too. It's like very, as much as it, you know, I, I struggle with, you know, how much to reveal about the work that I'm still doing and yeah. the growth that I still have mm-hmm. to, uh, embody. I, it's so important to me to like be human with other humans who I feel like can say, Hey, like, I don't, I mean, have what up thinking about it this way, you know, like, why do you want that? Why do you want this person to do that? Or, or why is this something you want? Have you ever thought about that? Maybe it's like this. And that's a hard place to put yourself in. Um, but I think it's imperative to me. I mean, I think that's sort of like part of the structure I feel is necessary, uh, to sort of place around myself because, um, and just constantly checking myself, you know, like anytime I get a letter from someone that's like, thank you so much for everything that you're saying and doing. And I sort of in that moment, like, I don't know where the, maybe the ego is in me framing it this way, but like, I really try and take it as like, okay, like stay on, stay on the path here of awareness about what you're creating and what's building behind you, you know? And I, on the one hand, I'm not asking anyone to follow me. Like, it's just happening. People are, you know, like, oh, that person's going in a direction I want to go. I'm going yeah. to follow them. But even still, even if I'm not intentionally saying, hey, follow me, there are people following me. So it's like I have to sort of maintain the balance of being aware of where I'm going yeah. without um, going somewhere specifically because there are people behind me. Yeah. It's just like endlessly... Um, 
I just try to stay as neutral, I guess, as possible. Humble and neutral, yeah. yeah. Are, are you getting a sense of your listener community around the world now? Yeah, for sure. And and to be fair, I think I, I've always sort of fallen into this role. Yeah. Um, I think I just, I, I see something that I want and I get it. Yeah. And there's a joke, like I just, I know how to get what I want, which can sound negative, but like I have, that's a strength that I have is like, okay, I want that. And what am I going to do to, to get there? You know, I've made a lot of one of the things I wanted to do when I had this idea to start a community was like, okay, at the time I had just basically come out of this huge, like dark night of the soul of with myself. I had a lot of my friendships and romantic relationships had sort of like crumbled for, you know, good. I don't think they were based on anything healthy, but I was just like totally all alone. I didn't have friends. I didn't have community. I didn't have connections in any sense. And I thought like, okay, so I want to start this community. What can I do? Like what, I know I can't just manifest that out of thin air. I knew I need to take steps in order to do it. And part of that was starting the podcast. Okay, that's a step. That's like, I can put my voice out there and I can learn for myself through the people that I talk to, but also people will listen and hopefully reach out and I'll sort of have uh, a remote, but a community nonetheless. Um, and then I thought, okay, and, and what if I were to go to grad school and not go to grad school because I necessarily think that the degree that I get will help me in doing this, but because if I can go to a school with a program that would attract other people like me, and I found one, um, I could go there, meet like-minded people, meet professors and other people that, again, could help me learn and grow, but also who the, where those connections could be uh, <clears throat> helpful moving forward, whether I needed to um, raise money or partner with people, right? So it's like I had this, I didn't actually end up going to grad school. I took a different route maybe to get to the same place. But um, I have always been, I feel like, very strategic, a long-winded answer, in following the path of what I want and what I want to get to, even if it's like multiple different meandering steps, right? Um, so all of that to say, like, I think I found myself in positions of leadership at multiple different times in my life in multiple different ways. And I think this was the first time that I uh, sort of set an intention to like embrace that and not feel bad about it. Yeah. Um, and you know, one thing that happened before I started the podcast, I was, it was around the time Trump got elected, the me too movement had started. Yeah. <clears throat> I had sort of, violently exited out of my life. Sure. And I had like so much to say. It was like a boiling cauldron of like, ah, I haven't spoken my thoughts uh -huh. and been myself in so long. Like it's endless. And I was posting Facebook rants, nice. which I, which I later realized was a very unproductive use of my time. <laughs> but what happened was that I kept getting a lot of messages from people. A lot of people who weren't commenting publicly on the posts, but would send me messages like, Hey, I don't really like, I don't want to say this publicly, but I'm really grateful that you're saying it and I feel the same way and I don't have the balls to do it, but I really appreciate that you do. And I was like, okay, well, if I, for whatever reason, have the balls, as they said, to do it, I should just probably, I should embrace that. Maybe there's something positive that can come from that. Like I have an armor, I have a more, you know, I have a relationship with bravery that is a gift and a privilege and um, something I should move toward and explore. And, and find out, you know, is some of that like a hero complex or is some of that actually positive and like the role that I should be fulfilling in life? Um, and I, so I think this time, <clears throat> more than other times where it was sort of less intentional, 
hearing from people who listen, uh, people who email me directly, people who post on the internet, on social media, people who come to meetups. It's like, whoa, like the, like this, this, like, I mean, it's weird to say this works, this worked. I don't know. I don't know if I know exactly what I'm trying to have work, but it's, it's to me, it's like a constant reminder of like, okay, like you sort of asked for this, like, where are you going to go within this space? What are you going to do with this? And if you are about to create a world or your own little miniature empire based on your own desires and ideas, Mm. like, make sure you're doing it right. Make sure it's coming from an okay place. Mm. Um, Because it's not about me anymore. It's not just about me creating the life that I want. Now it's about me creating a world. Yeah. And I just feel like very, um, I feel very grateful to be able to do it. Yeah. And uh, I just really, I don't want to fuck it up mostly for other people. Yeah. Like if I fuck it up for myself, then fine. Yeah. But I don't want to loop anyone else into anything that would hurt yeah, them. Of course. You know? um, Do you have a desire to kind of formalize the community at some point and take it in some direction and yeah. make it a physical thing perhaps? Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, I've talked, my listeners know I bought some land in Colorado. Um, and I think the approach, I mean, I think we've we've taken slightly different approaches. For me... I tried to like informalize it as much as possible. So in sort of reflecting on how this was going to happen in terms of like buying a lot of land and having shared ownership and then being like, okay, well if six people own the land and one of those people is like, Hey, I'm out, but I want to give my portion of this to my like crazy alcoholic drug addicted brother. It's like, uh, like does anyone who has the say to say no, or do I have that right? Or don't I? And who owns what and how do we make this egalitarian but constructive in some way? It was like, and the properties we were looking at were mostly in the U.S. and so it was a big investment and what do we need to do in order to sustain this investment? And the land was often in like, you know, more conservative in Republican rural environments where if anyone was going to come to visit, Every, we'd have to create everything ourselves. The entire infrastructure would need to come from us. And it just, it became, I mean, we were open to all different possibilities, but it just started to become a bit overwhelming. And like you said, it was like this, it was like a domino thing, right? Of like, oh my God, this leads to that and this question and that question. And I think finally what we settled on was actually singularly buying a plot of land, much smaller, where we could have some places for people, friends to come stay or even rent out little Airstreams or you know tiny homes and Airbnb, but that was our land, and the land where we decided to buy it was affordable, and there was an existing community which has a lot of this sort of tribal identity already of like you can't be an asshole because you're going to see them at the cafe the next morning, you know, like you have to sort of like face your shit and and be an adult and move on, um, and so our hope was like if we buy this plot of land here that's ours and has some in and out. I think we talked about this at a cafe too, like people coming in and out, which I think is really imperative. It can't just be, um, uh, what's the word? Stagnant. Yeah. Um, so there's some sort of in and out flow, but then also like other people who can afford it can buy their own plots. So there's a physical location, but we're not technically owning the same land. We just live on, quote unquote, the same land. And, and maybe we'll buy because again, it's affordable and, and 
we have the ability to do it, maybe we'll buy up some more plots and just sit on them because the carrying costs are low. And for our friend that we think might want to come in five years but can't afford it now but might be able to, to do it then, like I, the approach that I took was very like, let's just see. And because I have a platform, you know, it's like I, I think about the world in two ways, like ideas and then <clears throat> like the tangible and the intangible, right? Like the ideas and then how you bring those ideas into like the physical world. Um, so I have that. The ideas are there. They're out there. I talk about them all the time. So me owning land is like I'm infusing my ideas and beliefs, I guess, and, and values into that physical space. And if people want to come and like take part in that in any way, minimally, in a more sort of uh, complete way, cool. And just sort of see where it goes. Um, <clears throat> but for me, it was like my main priority was being physically close. And I think that's something that you've actually been able to create even without the land. There's like a physical closeness of people that can support each other. And just the way that where I've lived in LA or wherever else, like everyone's so fucking scattered that um, the major intention is like, let's just get close and let's get close in a way that's affordable and um, possible as quickly as possible. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if I'm a bit overly idealistic, but my plan, my, my vision for this is that like the collectives that I'm a, a part of use the goodwill and the, the capacity building that they have in the individuals to then take community events outside of that collective to the wider public just because I don't know that we can afford the luxury of just creating our own little pocket of, oh, okay, I'll, I'll live out my life that way, which sounds nice and we you know want to experience that. Um, I just don't know whether that's going to last. So I don't know whether, how big an ask that is of like, all right, guys, let's kick ass together and then start to plant seeds of, you know, maybe you start a community garden outside, you start to run events for people um, and then it kind of links up to a whole movement and that's where – I think this needs to go. I think yeah. we need to have a global movement of change. Yeah. And it's something I'm writing about of like, what's the new narrative that we're going to come up with? There's lots of ones on offer, but I think we kind of need to come together as much as possible and use community as the engine to do that. So, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, definitely hosting meetups, events, workshops uh -huh. within that space. I mean, whether it's in that physical space or somewhere close by is totally imperative. And that was partially why uh, buying doing something that was much more affordable was like, we can actually do that without yeah. having to like build our own event space. Yeah. It's just like, Oh my God, like how are we going to do that? Of course. And uh, the place that we bought land has all these sort of retreat centers, like a lot of them really close by. So it's oh, like, okay, great. cool. Like we can use that. And um, yeah, for sure. I think that's, I think it's, it's both. It's like mostly I, 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 I for so long, lived a life where I like people would tell me my ideas were unrealistic or yeah. like oh that sounds great but like let's be real you know yeah. and I made so many decisions mm. based on thinking what I wanted wasn't possible yeah so if I have any like tangible desire at this moment it's to really do and live the life that I want yeah and just show people that they can do it definitely too, yeah right? that's powerful like that if I knew that 
in my early twenties. Mm. I mean, I can't imagine the different choices I may have made. And I, and I know other people are doing the same. Yeah. Like, it's just not possible or I don't know how it works. I, I might as well settle. Yep. Um, and I, I would like you and me and whomever else, like, let's just live the lives we want yes. as much as we can mm-hmm. to hopefully allow, allow people to understand like the breadth of possibility. Yeah. Um, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Cool. Well, I mean, we could probably make this a 700 hour podcast. So we should <laughs> probably stop. Um, so two questions that I always ask my guests before we wrap up is uh-huh. you've talked about a lot of books, but mm. if there was one or two or, you know, you uh-huh. could cheat, uh, that you'd like to sort of recommend to the audience that were really instrumental to you around this or anything else, what would that be? Yep. Um, and, uh, uh, if there's any way like for people to sort of reach out to you mm-hmm. or contact you to learn more about what you're doing mm-hmm. or is there any, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go with the book I mentioned earlier, The Listening Society by Hansi Freinhardt. Um, awesome book, takes an overview of everything that's going on in the world right now and then talks about how we've got to look at the elephant at the room, which is developmental psychology and how that plays into every aspect of society. And then I am still emerging as a public figure. So you will have to watch this space. I'm working on joelightfoot.com. Um, but for now, I'm still in hermity author mode. Okay. And I'll be sure to let you know once I'm uh, publicly available. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much, Joe. Yeah, thank you. Good talking to you. Sure. <laughs> Thanks for listening to that show. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, If you'd like to support the show, the number one thing you can do is go into your podcast app, iTunes, uh, click five stars, uh, leave a review if you'd like, and hit subscribe. Um, As I mentioned in the last episode, the word millennial is a little bit challenging to spell, and I've recognized that if people don't spell it correctly and type out a millennial's guide to saving the world that it's really hard to find and if it's hard to find in the itunes store it's sometimes hard to find on other podcast apps as well so it's a really simple thing you can do for free it takes a minute but i would really really appreciate if you could do it mostly just so people can find the show when they want to Um, the other thing you can do is tell a friend if you see an episode that you or see an episode if you hear an episode that you particularly like or think is interesting or think someone else might find interesting share it Um, i really want to build this community and lastly purely selfishly send me an email anyacates at gmail.com um, I love hearing for you, from you guys. If you have any questions or topics or people that you want to have on the show or things you'd like me to discuss, I'm always open to that. I love responding to messages. You can find me on Instagram too. It's just my name, A-N-Y-A dot K-A-A-T-S. Uh, message me there if you'd like. Um, and also on Instagram is, I don't post a ton of photos on my feed, but I post stories a lot. So if you want to follow my behind the scenes adventures and all these places that I go, that's the best to do that. Um, But I love being in touch. I love hearing about who you are and where you are and what you're thinking. I think this podcast is very collaborative for me. I get a lot of emails from people with thoughts that are like, oh, wow, I never thought about it like that. Like, I want to address that in a future episode. And that sort of helps me understand something in a way that I hadn't before. So you guys are a part of this, even though you're potentially far away, listening through a device. This is a fucking community. I love technology, or at least this type of technology for that reason. Um, I'm going to play you out today with a song by Jellyfish. 
this is a sort of obscure band, but they have an album called Spilt Milk, which is really hard to describe. Um, one of those things that uh, doesn't, well, it sounds like a lot of different things <laughs> mixed together, um, but not really one other band that I could even cite as sounding identical. Um, they're pretty wild and kind of strange, and uh, they have a few amazing songs. I would say the whole album, Spilt Milk, is pretty good. Um, they have another album as well, but I like that one the best. Uh, this one's called uh, The Ghost at Number One, and um, I think it talks about this idea that Joe and I uh, played with a little bit about leadership and um, do we have uh, sort of the right and can it be sort of healthy when we assume a leadership role and the nuance of being a disconnected, abusive guru versus being an informed, um, empathetic leader. Uh, I think it requires diligence and practice. And uh, I don't know, I heard the song when I was scrolling through my Spotify to try and find a song for today and it made sense. And it makes me kind of want to like bop my head and dance around a little bit, which also feels really good. So that's what we're going to do. Enjoy, guys. Love you.